From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. 2020 broke records for gun sales and gun deaths in the United States. Today, where Colorado fits in and what information's missing when it comes to our understanding of gun violence. We don't have data systems that tell us what's happening in anything close to real time. Today, we explore the research that informs gun laws with the health policy podcast, Trade-Offs. Plus, how Colorado researchers hope to change the debate. I view firearm injury like any other public health problem. And had we been able to apply the usual methods of sort of science and evaluation to it, absolutely we would have saved lives. Then we remember the pioneer of the Bode Piano. I'm Kevin Beatty. I'm a photographer and reporter for Denverite. It's always been sort of the, the concept of Denverite to be a peer with our readers. And being a photojournalist for Denverite means that I'm on the ground all the time to show people that the stories we're talking about are actually happening. It's also a way for us to participate in the city. The free daily Denverite newsletter comes to your inbox every morning. Sign up at denverite.com, powered by Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The mass shootings in Boulder and Atlanta have reignited the debate about gun violence and gun policy. President Biden is calling for a ban on assault weapons with high-capacity magazines. He's also taking some executive action. 2020 was a record-breaking year for both gun sales and gun deaths in the U.S., People bought at least 20 million guns, and 40% were first-time buyers. Still, the sorts of data and research that could inform policy are lacking, something we'll explore with Dan Gorenstein, host of the new podcast Trade-Offs. And you may recognize Dan's name. He used to be the senior reporter on the health desk at Marketplace. Dan, welcome to our show. Ryan, thanks so much to be here. I'm really happy to be here. Your goal with trade-offs is to push aside the politics of an issue and focus on the data. That sounds particularly thorny when it comes to guns <laughs> and gun violence, huh? It, it, indeed. Uh, and real quick, let, uh, let me tell you about the mission first, and then I'll sort of talk specifically about um, how you think about the mission within the context of gun violence, Ryan. Yeah. And, you know, when I was at Marketplace, you would do these two to three minute stories, but these are really complicated, dense stories, right? I think we all know that health policies are a really complicated topic. And as I did my own reporting and I watched the reporting of other people around the country, I feel like a lot of stories fell into one of two buckets. Either it was super dense and really hard to understand, or it was this like amazing, personal, heartbreaking story, but it was a story of almost an N of one. And you really struggle to see the forest for the trees. Hmm. And so the idea behind trade-offs is like, what if you had more time? What if you weren't beholden to some news hole, like some three, four minute news hole, and you really could kind of do the rigorous reporting that you needed to do, but you also could introduce your audience to the characters. So you could have the that that really nice blend of smart reporting, but also kind of understanding the human experience and really feeling the so what and the premise behind trade-offs is like help people 
trust your reporting, but also feel something. And the the hope is that if you feel something, you're more likely to remember. And if you remember this, then you, all of a sudden you get a little bit smarter about something that's really complicated in our country and really important, which is health policy. So that brings me to the like gun violence question. And you asked about challenges and really there are two. And the first is in gun violence, I think it's really important to be empathetic. You know, this is such a politically charged topic and you really want to try to like lean in with empathy, I think, because so often this issue is just like black or white. You're Mm. either for guns with no limits or you're taking them all away. And we thought that it was really important to feature characters that embody some of the gray, some of the nuance of this issue. That's really cool and all great and all, but you also have to ground it in data. And that's the, the that was the second challenge. And, you know, yeah. In, oh, go ahead. In just a few minutes, I, I, I want to know what data is available um, specifically when it comes to gun violence in Colorado and maybe how that compares to the rest of the nation before we dip into your episode. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that, Ryan. So, so look, I think that, um, there, there are a couple there, Colorado sort of in line with three national trends that the first is that during the pandemic, homicides were up, especially in big cities. We saw the largest single year increase in gun gun homicides ever recorded. The Denver Post reported uh, Denver saw a 51% jump compared to 2019. Gun sales are super high. The best best proxy for that are background checks. Mm -hmm. And in Colorado, checks were up 70%, sometimes even 100%. And at one point, Ryan, the background checks were up so high that something that had taken typically eight minutes could go four days. There was such high demand. Wow. And those general trends are in line with the rest of the country. Yes, that's right. The, these 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 trends more or less sort of mark uh, what is going on with uh, the the national statistics. That's right. And it's fascinating to think of gun policy as health policy. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, it's it's really interesting to me. There's sort of a larger movement going on in health policy circles now, where you we. People are more thinking about the social situation where we live, where we work, and how that affects our health. That could be climate, right? That could be the water. Is there lead in the water? Uh, That certainly applies to gun violence, right? I mean, there's research that shows that if your neighborhood has lots of shootings, especially for kids, your own mental and physical health can be harmed. Mm. Um, One of the researchers in our episode actually says even simple things, research shows simple things like demolishing abandoned buildings or cleaning up a park can reduce gun violence. And then, of course, there, there's the money piece to this, Ryan. Uh, yeah. It can be really expensive. It can be. If you're, really, if you're shot, yeah. Yeah. We, so we, we're going to hear this episode. Uh, and I'm going to have you stick around, Dan. We'll pick up the discussion afterwards. Let's take some time to listen to Trade-Offs, a new era of gun violence research hosted by our guest today, Dan Gorenstein. Jonathan Jay is methodically charting this surge in gun homicides. But when the public health researcher steps back, even he's surprised by the picture that the numbers paint. What we're seeing is akin to an outbreak, a jump of that magnitude from one year to the next. 
is unprecedented. That jump he's talking about is the 35% spike in gun homicides that hit big cities in 2020. Jonathan, who's at Boston University's School of Public Health, is quick to point out three things about that spike. First, it's had a disproportionate effect on people of color. That's an increase of thousands of lives lost, overwhelmingly of black and brown people, and especially young men. Second, those murders impact more than just the victims. We know that having a gun homicide happen in your neighborhood affects your mental and physical health. Third, Jonathan stands by that 35% figure, but he says it's at best a very educated guess, even rigorously validated, but still a guess. We don't have data systems that tell us what's happening in anything close to real time. The data on gun violence in the U.S. are a mess. According to a 2019 University of Chicago Arnold Ventures report, federal agencies collect 25-plus data sets, each with some small piece of the puzzle, like the number of firearms licensed approved or crimes committed with a gun. But many are incomplete, lagging by years, or missing details. The report authors concluded that policymakers lack the full picture they need to make gun laws safer and smarter. In Chicago alone, 102 people were shot over the weekend. Cincinnati just saw its worst 28 days of gun violence in four years. Jonathan and his colleagues wanted to bring more transparency and visibility to the growing number of murders in 2020. Gun violence in Denver has been going up. Police in Miami-Dade say they've A teenager from Queens is just the latest victim. Since last Friday, more than 60 people have been shot. 11 have died. Do-it-yourself dashboards were popping up to track the other surging crisis, COVID, in real time and on a local level. The team decided to track homicides in the same way, starting with America's 100 biggest cities. This March, they launched the Gun Violence 2020 City Tracker. So right now what we're showing is similar to what everyone got used to seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic. What does the curve look like in my community in a format that is user-friendly, and can guide community-based responses. The interactive tracker relies on numbers from a nonprofit called the Gun Violence Archive, which scrapes data from public sources like media and press releases. The hope is to show how useful real-time data like this can be and convince local and federal agencies to make more official data available. Good data isn't the only thing policymakers are missing when it comes to reducing gun violence. The research on what works is limited, too. The roots of both shortcomings trace back to 1996. That's when Congress passed a provision called the Dickey Amendment, effectively forbidding the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, from doing anything to advocate or promote gun control. The clampdown? also cowed the country's other major funder of health research, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. Since then, neither agency has spent even 1% of their annual research budgets on gun violence studies. In a 2015 interview, former Congressman Jay Dickey, now deceased, told NPR that he regretted the decades of progress his provision had thwarted. All this time that we have had, we would have found a solution, in my opinion, And I think it's a shame that we haven't. 
University of Colorado physician and firearms researcher Emmy Betts says she's convinced the country has paid a steep price for limiting research. I view firearm injury like any other public health problem. And had we been able to apply the usual methods of sort of science and evaluation to it, absolutely we would have saved lives. This idea, more research over the past 25 years would have saved lives, is widely shared among public health researchers. Their certainty, says Emmy, comes in part from the success we've seen improving automobile safety. Our death rate from motor vehicle crashes has fallen drastically over the past decades. And that, that's because we applied science. We made better cars. We put airbags in. We didn't ban cars, but we used science to make driving safer. And we did not do that with firearms. And we have a lot of catch up to do. And while the politics of cars are very different from the politics of guns, the freeze on federal support for firearms research has started to thaw. Tuesday, the House voted to fund more than $20 million to study gun violence, the first time something like this has happened in more than two decades. Congress in 2019 finally approved the first new federal funding dedicated explicitly to gun research, half to the CDC, half to the NIH. Having this funding, it just it changes the whole game in terms of being able to build the science base. And so it's just thrilling. The first grants from that funding were awarded late last year. And who was lucky enough to get a slice of that pie? Emmy Betts. Denver-based ER doc and researcher Emmy Betts just received some of the first federal dollars Congress has dedicated firearms research in more than 20 years. This funding marks a new chapter in Emmy's career, which began under the shadow of a de facto funding freeze. When I was an early stage young investigator, I had multiple well-meaning mentors suggest to me, maybe you should focus on something else. Because if you cannot get grants, your career ends, basically. Like you can't, you, you just can't do the work. Just like with other public health crises, Emmy is hopeful that as federal funding increases, we'll learn more and that knowledge will ultimately save lives. She's using one of her new grants to leverage what we already know about suicide among gun owners. Having a gun in the home increases the risk of suicide by about threefold. Not because the gun makes someone suicidal, but because if they are considering suicide and can reach for a gun, it is likely they will die because it's the most lethal method. And she's studying one solution that could reduce that risk. It's known as voluntary temporary storage. Essentially, helping gun owners find safe places to leave their guns while they're in distress. It's really about working with adults, with their friends and family to talk about, hey, how can we make your home safer while you're getting the help you need, while you're getting better? Gun rights advocates have resisted most efforts to tighten regulations, especially efforts to forcibly remove a weapon from someone's home. Emmy's optimistic a voluntary option will help. Sometimes in this highly polarized world, there's this kind of almost like assumption that people who own guns simply don't know the data. And if we just tell them the numbers, they wouldn't own guns. Like they're just not educated yet. The hypothesis under all of this is that firearm owners do not want their friends and family dying by suicide. And so how can we work with the firearm owning community to find approaches that work for them. For people who struggle to imagine how guns can be made safer without just 
taking them away. Emmy tells them to think of all this stuff that we've done to help people avoid drunk driving. You know, we think about we now have Lyft and Uber and we have whole designated driver programs and taxi discounts and all kinds of things that we put in place to make it easy for people to not get behind the wheel when they've been drinking. And so this is it's it's sort of similar. Like, how do we make it simple for places to both offer storage and for people to use it? Out of home storage is something clinicians often recommend to patients. Emmy had seen a little data and had heard a few stories about it working, like a veteran hanging on to a pistol for a war buddy, a gun shop storing a rifle for a longtime customer. She'd also heard about some of the barriers. People kind of calling around and, and they can't find a place that offers storage or they call a shop and the shop says, well, you have to be a member and the annual membership is XYZ dollars. And, you know, so I think for people who are maybe in the midst of crisis, it can be a confusing or complicated situation. Emmy's team is using their federal grant to do the first large scale study of this voluntary approach to preventing suicides. They'll interview and survey public health groups, firearm owners, law enforcement, and others in Colorado and Washington State. Her ultimate goal? Create a toolkit that states can use to make voluntary temporary storage a safe and easy option. It's work that Emmy says took on even more urgency as she watched gun purchases soar in 2020. First-time buyers make up a record 40% of sales, people who do not have as much training or experience with things like safe storage. And that raises the risk of suicide for everybody in the home, whether it's kids, teenagers, the person who bought the gun, spouses, and so forth. So that in the coming year, if there are rough times, that suicide risk remains elevated. There has not been a clear spike in suicides during the pandemic, but researchers like Emmy worry one may be on the horizon. It's easy to imagine why. Isolation, lack of support, financial hardship. The idea of giving up your gun when you feel emotionally unsafe may sound straightforward, but 38-year-old Autumn Parkin says doing it turns out to be pretty tough. I was floundering. I woke up every single day, and every day was the same. Autumn's world had begun to crumble by the spring of 2019. I'm putting out fires all day long, whether it be, you know, broken walls or, you know, dealing with tantrums, screaming. I felt trapped, and I felt no matter how hard I tried, nothing was ever going to get any better. Two of Autumn's three kids have severe autism, and by then, she was no longer eligible for all the services she'd been getting from the state of Idaho, occupational therapy, speech therapy, respite care. It took us four years to get that support system set up. And literally overnight, it was gone. Hey, buddy. You're making noise again. Can you go upstairs? Yeah. Autumn, who is doing this interview over Zoom, pauses to talk to her son. You're being loud, sweetheart. You're all right, buddy. Okay. Autumn and her husband decided she'd quit her job to take care of the kids. So suddenly, Autumn's lost all of that outside support her work identity, 
also a nice break from the kids. And now she was shouldering a ton more. It really threw our family into chaos. I tried to act like I was okay, but, you know, I felt like I lost my sense of purpose. I had no hope. Um, I really, really struggled. Autumn had attempted suicide in the past. She'd struggled with alcohol for years and had been diagnosed with depression, PTSD, and anxiety. Now, on her hardest days, Autumn found herself in the garage with her pistol, thinking about ending her life. It was just a downward spiral. Autumn had turned to guns years earlier after surviving a brutal attack. I made it a goal that I was going to become proficient in firearms and self-defense so that I would never have to feel that weak and vulnerable ever again. Her training brought strength and solace, and she wanted to share that, especially with other women. Soon, Autumn was fully immersed in the firearms industry, working at gun trade shows, flying to Washington to lobby members of Congress, even appearing in instructional videos like this one for NRA women. Okay, now I want you to get a good sight picture. And then whenever you're ready. Those nights in the garage, Autumn knew. She knew she was at risk of harming herself, She'd recently gone to a suicide awareness event at a local gun range. I really started to recognize I'm, I'm, I am in crisis. I am in trouble. And if, if I don't get this out of my possession, I am going to get sad, drunk, and then do it. Autumn felt like she was in a lose-lose situation. On the one hand, she worried if she gave up her pistol, she'd grow even further apart from the community and the people she loved. In the gun community, it's a really shameful thing to talk about mental illness because then you get looked at differently. On the other hand, she thought... If she kept her pistol and died by a suicide, she'd undermine her cause. I had made a promise to myself and the gun community that I would never shoot myself because I didn't want to be part of the statistic that people were using against gun owners. I mean, I have the Second Amendment tattooed on my back. That's how much it means to me. It was a terrifying tug of war inside her head. Then, in May of 2019, while visiting a friend's house, she acted on impulse. I I didn't go with the intent of saying, hey, I'm in crisis. I need you to store this for me. It was more like I conveniently left, like, forgot it and left it with him. It was like an informal cry for help. Autumn's friend ended up hanging onto her pistol for over a year. 
she was glad it was out of the house, especially in what she called a very dark year. But in the fall of 2020, her friend texted. That was like, hey, I'm going to be in town. I got your pistol. Let's meet up. She wasn't ready to have it back. But since she'd forgotten her pistol at her pal's place, Autumn had done her homework. She contacted Hold My Guns, a new project started by gun owners that's creating a national network of vetted voluntary storage locations. Their website hadn't even launched, but within 24 hours, they connected Autumn with a local range to store her pistol. It was such a relief. It was such a relief. Because I know... I I have been so depressed lately. If I had access to my my firearm, I would have used it. I mean, there's there's no doubt in my mind that I would not be here. Autumn gets that by talking about the dangers of guns and suicide, she may lose her standing in the firearms community. But she believes gun rights advocates and mental health advocates must come together. A divide she's trying to bridge. I just want to be as honest as I can because I know there are other people out there who are hurting. And, you know, if by sharing my story it saves one person, then it's worth it. I know right now people are really scared to speak honestly. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to <laughs> sacrifice my reputation and never work in the industry again, if that's what it means. Because people are dying. Researchers are hopeful about what renewed federal support means for their work and the people like Autumn, whose lives it could eventually save. Not only because it's more money, but it's money arriving at a unique time. Our understanding of health and the forces that shape it are changing rapidly, says Jonathan Jay. This is a moment when it has become more deeply ingrained in public health research that social environments, physical environments, and structural racism all shape people's health outcomes. And that shift says Jonathan, creates the room to reimagine the role that everything from the police to public parks can play in preventing violence. Jonathan's applying now for the next wave of federal grants, hoping to build on work he's done showing that simply demolishing vacant buildings can significantly reduce local gun violence. At the same time, researchers like Emmy and Jonathan understand the limits of this new funding. For me as a researcher, this is an exciting time to have these opportunities. And at the same time, important to remember that people are dying every day, and it'll take time for this research to bear fruit. Late last year, Congress approved another $25 million for gun violence research. In the three months since that bill passed, an estimated 10,000 more Americans have lost their lives to gun violence and suicide. Before we end, we also want to share the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline one more time. That's 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this 
is trade-offs. Which you've been hearing on Colorado Matters, and Dan Gorenstein is back with us. Dan, hearing that episode, it really strikes me that that Dickey Amendment, for those who crave data, uh, this was really a game-changer in terms of setting research back. Do you think that's true? Um, the researchers that we talked to, Ryan, for this episode, definitely think that's very true. And you, you'd go on sort of health policy, Twitter or whatever, (laughs) and you'd see a lot. And we we talked about this in the episode, but there are a lot of researchers who say, well, look, look at cars, you know, um, cars used to be very, very dangerous. And then we studied them a lot and we figured out how to make these products, these cars, these vehicles safer. And that was in large part because of the research that folks were able to do. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think that it, it certainly speaks to the kind of um, frustration around the Dickey Amendment and the optimism that uh, researchers like uh, Emmy Betts in Denver have going forward. Yeah. I mean, what is the larger picture on federal funding to advance research into guns. You said, what, another $25 million, I think, was allocated. I mean, do we expect that to go up over the years? Do we expect any sort of yep. formal agencies that will, uh-huh. you know, develop offices around this or what? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, President Biden released his administration's proposed 2022 budget, and it includes a uh, doubling of the amount of federal funding uh, here, he also uh, announced a number of executive actions, including directing federal agencies to invest more in evidence-based solutions to reduce gun violence, especially in cities and communities of color. So, I think for sure, uh, at least during this administration, we're going to we're going to see real effort. Uh, and I, I think you know we've seen. We've seen guns play a real role as as, as 2021 has uh, unfolded here, Ryan. You know that as well as better than many people in our country. And um, I, I think there's a real, I, it, it seems to me there is momentum. Uh, there's, there is sort of a collective, uh, this sort of post-pandemic moment. There's an idea that like, okay, we don't want to see more deaths there's some agreement around that idea as it relates to gun violence. So where, where is there some common ground? We have just about a minute left. There was something that we didn't get to in the first part of the program, which you were going to mention the expense of gun violence. So uh, gun violence can be uh, very expensive, uh, you know, in terms of the, like the, the healthcare costs, there's a, there's a paper in the annals of internal medicine that uh, shows that I'm just looking. I'm looking this up right now. Uh, but <laughs> we're, we're we're talking about you know um, th- thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars uh, for people who end up being uh, sent to the emergency room, sent to the hospital. That's remember Ryan that like being in the hospital, it's one of the most expensive places. And if you've been shot with multiple gun wounds, that ends up being a very expensive thing. Uh, and those are costs that are sort of borne, obviously, by the individual. Those are costs borne by society uh, to some degree. And those are also costs, going back to this, the first question you asked earlier yeah. about sort of the, the social determinants of health, 
when people in our communities are harmed by gun violence, there are costs that are often invisible, but they're there too. It's been really fascinating to have a new lens on this debate on this area of policy. Dan, thanks so much. Dan Gorenstein hosts Trade-Offs, a new podcast about the intersection of health and policy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR News. Every day I cover Congress and what your representatives and the federal government are doing for you and for Colorado. I'm thankful that you value insightful, independent reporting that provides you with news you can use. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's going on in your community and beyond. Now I'm asking you to support the journalism that matters to you because you make it possible when you donate. Please give today at CPR.org. Thank you. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Returning from spring break, teachers are focused on how they'll get through to the end of the year, a year that's taken an extreme toll on their mental health. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visits with two teachers in Jefferson County who sought help. Holly Byer laid awake in bed, her mind spinning on just one of many long, dark pandemic nights. Your mind just going on this hamster wheel of, like, I want to do my best, but I've never done this before. What the music teacher had never done before is teach her students at Mount Carbon Elementary with no instruments and no performances and through a computer. And I would be up all night thinking, like, how can I deliver this successfully? Like, what are the tools I have? What are the resources I have? And then there's this fear of the unknown. There's these high expectations for yourself and from others. The pressure she felt took a toll on her mental health. It's been, it's been a year. Worry about teachers' mental health was the top teacher issue cited by Colorado school administrators in a fall survey. And the year isn't over. Some fear the remaining weeks of school may push some teachers to the brink as more students with high needs cycle back into classrooms, plus lots of tests and exams. Clinical social worker Dr. Amy Lopez said in the fall, calls to a special hotline set up for teachers sounded like this. I'm stressed out. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm working all the time. Teachers' workloads had doubled or more. Some teachers took personal responsibility that they couldn't keep students engaged. I feel like I'm a bad teacher. I feel overwhelmed. I can't keep up. For Jordan Seen, a Jeffco middle school teacher, it was exhausting. Kind of felt like a DJ because I had two computers. She had to juggle screens for the kids learning at home. And then four kids in my classroom. At the same time, the burnout came in waves. When Seen's stress levels rose, sleep was elusive. I was just stressed. But Seen knew what to do after her mental health dipped last spring when she cut back on exercising when everything shut down. So she upped her visits to the district's employee assistance program. It offers free mental health counseling for employees and their families. This year our top issue has been anxiety. We also do relationship and couples. We do a lot of grief and loss. We've seen that. Manager and counselor Kathleen Remington shows me around the homey red brick building in a quiet Lakewood neighborhood. The counseling rooms are decorated with calming art, uplifting wall hangings, oh, stress balls. You can take colorful bowls of stress balls. Counselors help people identify needs and goals, evaluate their coping skills, and then give them tools to manage life and work. And for teachers, helping them revise their expectations. It's helped with my mental health tremendously. Holly Byer says she learned strategies to manage her stress. Come on, girl. Come on. 
She takes more walks. She journals, like, here's the problem, here's the solution, so things seem more manageable. She takes breathing breaks at school. She has an emergency go-to list of dozens of activities that she can turn to for stress relief. She calls it her SOS list. I think, okay, when was the last time that I called a friend? When was the last time I went on a walk or a hike? When was the last time that... You know, I read a book that wasn't a curriculum book, just for fun. Meyer says if she waits until things get too overwhelming, then I'm just too emotionally exhausted to even rescue myself. With her counselor, Jordan Seen learned routines, like setting the apps on her phone to go dark at 10 p.m. She gives herself the choice each day to journal or use the Calm Meditation app, which is free for teachers. And she makes sure she trains regularly at her Denver gym, Train, Fight, Win, where she coaches and kickboxes. And she recommends this, writing two thank you notes or texts each week during her planning period, one to someone like her grandmother and to a student. So me being able to do that and make that a part of my work was something I did have control over when there's so many things right now that we don't really have control over. Other teachers are still struggling. This spring, Dr. Amy Lopez of the Depression Center said the teacher hotline calls are fewer, but the theme has shifted to this. Now it seems to be more, I'm kind of numb. I really just don't care. I don't want to do my work. I don't want to interact with friends. I don't want to go out. I really don't want to do anything. As for Holly Beyer and Jordan Seen, especially after getting help, they're sticking with teaching. Holly Beyer. When I see my kids, I am 110% reassured that this is what I'm put on this earth to be doing, and I just cannot love this job enough. The center will host a forum on mental health April 22nd to help teachers figure out how to recharge during the summer and make decisions for their futures. I'm Jenny Brundine, CPR News. The man known as the pioneer of the bowed piano has died. Stephen Scott was 77. Scott was a composer and longtime music professor at Colorado College. He led the school's bowed piano ensemble. I spoke with him in 2014 about the technique. Musicians manipulate the strings of an open piano with mallets, guitar picks, and other tools, including fishing line. The effect often sounds otherworldly. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Delighted to be here. Give us a quick visual description of what a bowed piano ensemble looks like in concert. I mean, how many people are on stage? How many pianos are involved? Usually one piano only. It's a a grand, a nine-foot grand, and ten players. So there's a lot of uh, moving from one place to another and picking up a different tool from the one that you just used. So it's a real choreography around the piano, it sounds like. It is. We sometimes call it traffic control, <laughs> and we do rehearse that. Um, right, the, because the, the blocking is just as important as the notes you play. Absolutely, and that's mainly to make sure that everybody is where they need to be at every time particular time they need to be there. And if you've got people going around the piano in opposite directions, you need to have somebody go out wide and somebody come in close. You've got to have your eyes open and know how fast to go and know what when to stop and what to do when you get there. Do you notate that in the composition, that it's not just the, the notes being played and how they're being played, but by whom and where? No, I don't notate it in the score. Probably because 
we, we do this in our rehearsals and it's a physical act. And so I don't draw diagrams as you would with football plays, for example. Okay. <laughs> uh, but we, but we take quite a bit of time during rehearsals just to walk here and tiptoe there and put your arms here when somebody else has their arms in this particular position and so forth. And sometimes it's very crowded. You've used many different tools to get a sound out of the piano. So guitar picks, mallets, I can picture. Tell me about the fishing line. The fishing line was the first bow that we used with the bowed piano ensemble. And actually, I borrowed the idea from a composer a friend of mine uh, who discovered that if you take nylon fish line, especially pretty thin, it's a six-pound test that we use, and you put rosin on it, you can run it under the strings of the piano and draw it back and forth to make a sustained tone. It's a drone, or it can be a chord, a very long organ-like chord, if you have several of these devices. These are stored in the piano while we're performing, and we pick them up and play them, and then we put them back in to a little uh, enclosure, which we call a trap, so that they don't fly around and they don't tangle and so forth. Yes, but, that could get... <laughs> yes. If they got tangled, it could get uh, messy well, fast. Well, fishing line is is made to tangle. Sometimes we have to fight with that during even during a performance. Sometimes we'll have two of them tangled together and we'll have to either rip them apart quickly or we'll have to take a pair of scissors. We always have scissors in the uh, in the piano and so on. But for the most part, we have them organized so that we know exactly where everything is that we as individuals are supposed to use. I'd like to hear the effect of this, uh, but prime our ear for it first. What we're going to hear to begin with is what we call a soft bow. And this is a nylon fish line bow. And in this case, we at the beginning of this particular piece, we are having drones, uh, one drone at a time, come in until it builds up to a very big chord, all on the same pitch, but all across the range of the piano. Your music has often visual evocative titles, rainbows, Vikings of the Sunrise, Ocean Drum, The Deep Spaces. When, when you write music that, frankly, uh, sounds a little alien to people, I wonder if you find that the visual cues in the titles help them connect with it somehow. Well, perhaps. Uh, I, I think of it mostly as a sonic representation of an idea or of a place or a, a person, perhaps, or a culture or whatever. So... It may bring up visual images. I mean, I think all music does, actually, to, to many people. Many people have a visual movie going on in their head when they're listening to a composition. But if it has a title that invites them to, to uh, think that way or to just feel that way uh, and, and hear that way, that can be very magical sometimes. In some ways, your work seems to have been defined by this search for ways to get a unique sound out of the piano uh, and make music with it. How often have you said to yourself, I think I've discovered every new sound I'm going to find out of this thing? Or do you see well, I've this? never thought that. You've never thought that? Okay. No, there's always something. There's always something new. Well, tell me about d- discoveries you've made. Uh, are they accidental, you know? 
oh, occasionally the new discoveries are accidental. Generally speaking, if we have a problem we need to solve, we figure out how to solve it. And I'll give you an example, if you don't mind, Yeah, which is uh, the muting of the strings of the piano, which is part of what we do also. One of our other tools are mutes that we make ourselves. They look like little uh, erasers, but I don't need to go into how we make them. However, when we put these on the strings of the piano, they cut down the resonance of the string. One of my uh, assistants had this idea and figured out how to do it, and so she and I worked together to make these devices. If we want a string to be bowed very quickly and to have a kind of gritty attack, that is the beginning of the tone, we decided to use some plexiglass, cut it up in small sticks, and then rough it up by uh, filing it and by scratching it with a razor blades and so on. So it has a little bit of a grip. Yeah. And it goes like that. I can't really sing it. I have to hear it. <laughs> you start with the sound in your head and you go, what is the tool in the real world that would make that possible? Yes, exactly. I do that. Do you have former students making music now who are bowed piano disciples? That is to say, does this tradition have a life after you retire? It'll have a short life, perhaps. Uh, it, and uh, several of my bowed piano students have gone in the direction more generally of, of experimental music and compose with different means than what I've used. However, I've also created some what I call uh, colonies of uh, bowed piano groups uh, <laughs> around, yeah, around <laughs> the world, basically. For example, in Estonia and in Ireland and uh, in uh, Texas and here and there. Uh, but you said a short life. You thought it only might have a short life. Beyond because that. these are temporary ensembles that, that somebody wants to put together and they contact me and say, can we play your piece and send me a score. And I have to say, I can send you a score, but it won't teach you how to play the bowed piano. It'll just tell you the notes. And so hmm. it's like everyone has to learn this instrument before they can play it. And I'm basically the only one that can do that. Is there a, a single piece or perhaps a moment in your music you are most proud of? I don't know, one that you feel encapsulates the, the, the sound or the possibility of the bowed piano. I, I really like very much our first recording made in 1984. And I'm very happy with the way it was performed, actually, by by the students. And that was our first recording. Uh, and this is, uh, the, the title of this one is a New Music for a Bowed Piano. That is Stephen Scott speaking with me in 2014 as he was about to retire. Scott was a composer and longtime music professor at Colorado College and a pioneer of the bowed piano. He died in March from complications of dementia. He was 77. A note that Colorado College holds the license for KRCC, which is part of Colorado Public Radio. And that's our show with thanks to our own ensemble. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. 
Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.